0: Good afternoon everyone and happy Friday on this absolutely beautiful spring day. We are so glad you could join us for this month's fireside chat. I'm Lisa Stearns. I'm here with Dr. Tim Cross our senior vice president and we'll be updating you again today on COVID-19 cases within the university, the institute, and across the state. And we have a special guest who will be giving us even some more insight on the pandemic. But first a few reminders Remember to keep your audio muted so everyone can hear the conversation. Use the chat function on Zoom to ask any questions. You can publicly post your question in chat or you can send it privately to me. And of course, a recording of this session will be made and posted to the UTIA Coronavirus website. You can find the link on our homepage at utia.tennessee.edu. So welcome, Tim. How does the case count currently look for the university and the institute?
1: Thanks, Lisa. Good to see everyone once again. Uh, welcome back, and I uh, hope everyone is doing well. We've got, I think, uh, some really good uh, news from the institute to share today, and really looking forward to our special guest uh, that's with us, too. A couple of things before I get too wound up here. Uh, you know, i I usually stick to the script pretty well, but, uh, many of, you know, we're going to be awarding Bill Dance an honorary doctorate, uh, in just a few weeks during commencement. And I thought, uh, you might like to, uh, see or hear actually, uh, a song that was just released about Mr. Dance. Uh, and if you were with us uh, earlier in the year, re- you recall hearing some of Bill's stories about his fishing and, and his, uh, uh experience with UT athletics and so forth. So, uh, you know, we, we think about uh, COVID most of the time, but I wanted to let you know we have a few other interests, too. For those country music fans out there, check out Luke Bryan's new release. So now let me uh, get, get about our business here today, and uh, I'm going to be very brief in in sharing just a quick update on our uh, uh, COVID data from a university perspective, because I know we've got a real expert uh, to join us uh, and give you a much better overview of of a statewide perspective. Uh, So let's run through the slides that I've been sharing with you every week. And uh, as you can see, we're down at a very, very low level uh, throughout the time period reflected here in terms of our weekly data. And and as of today, university-wide, we had one employee and 42 students uh, that had active positive case uh, status. So uh, a very low number, and, and that's great news. And university-wide also, uh, we had 15 employees that were quarantined and 134 students. And again, looking across uh, all the way back to almost uh, not quite a year ago at this time, uh, we're at, at numbers that are, that are very low and the lowest we've seen. So that's great news. Here in the Institute of Agriculture, I I did just learn a little while ago we actually have one positive case right now uh, among employees, so I apologize my chart I did early this morning when I had had a chance. I did not update it but uh, for today we have one one positive case among employees and, uh, as you can see, we went three straight weeks with no positive cases and and as of today just one to report and then in terms of our uh, isolations uh, just one employee at at this point in time uh, who is in uh, isolation, so uh, really low numbers. Nationally, uh, the chart looks similar to what we've seen uh, the last uh, couple of months, fairly flat. Uh, It's not down to zero, but at least it's not uh, at the levels we saw over the winter, and statewide data, much the same story there. So I know I, uh, oh, and finally, our vaccine status, uh, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but uh, we're approaching um, uh, more than 17% with a single shot at least, and almost 30% uh, that have been, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 30% with one shot and almost seven, a little over 17% fully vaccinated. So I'm going to stop uh, with those remarks right there and uh, get on with our program here this afternoon because I know we've got an expert that that is uh, far more informed about uh, this information than I am. So I want to be sure we've got a chance uh, to hear fully from uh, our guest today.
0: Yes, and so, um, as you mentioned, uh, she is certainly an expert and can give us more context on how the state uh, continues to handle the pandemic. So I'll let you introduce her.
1: Great, thank you, uh, Lisa. And uh, I'm really uh, pleased to welcome Dr. Mary Margaret Phil to our meeting today, uh, and appreciate her taking the time to be with us. Uh, Dr. Phil is the Deputy State Epidemiologist for Tennessee, and she's served in the Department of Health since 2017. She got her MD from Mercer University, and she is board certified in both pediatrics and internal medicine. I've gotten to know Dr. Phil from participating in Commissioner Charlie Hatcher's uh, periodic uh, Ag industry partner meetings. That have taken place throughout the pandemic, uh, weekly or bi-weekly at first, and I think more of a monthly uh, uh, event these days. But uh, throughout that whole time period, she's really done a great job of of presenting information about the pandemic to that group. And honestly, I've stolen some of her information and shared it uh, with you uh, during my fireside chat. So uh, I thought, you know, we, we ought to really hear directly from Dr. Phil, uh, and so I invited her to join us, and she uh, happily uh, accepted that. So, Dr. Phil, welcome. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, and we look forward to your remarks.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to get to speak to new groups, and um, I have to say, you know, um so you mentioned I've been with the department since 2017. I, I first joined the department in about 2015. I was an Epidemic Intelligence Service Officer assigned to the Department of Health and then have worked with the state since then. But before COVID, one of the hats that I uh, wore and loved to participate in was as co-chair of our state One Health Committee. So I have a very, uh, you know, agriculture and um, on plant and animal health is very near and dear to my heart. And so I love getting to speak with groups like this because it's, so important that we all be on the same page and work together, because uh, everything that that affects us as people also affects our environment and the animals that we we love and that 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 drive our economy and that are so important in the state of Tennessee. So I really appreciate the invitation and I'm happy to speak with you today. Ahead, let me ready. uh, <laughs> let me share my slides here, um, and make sure that this will work. Um, let's see, can you see that? Okay.
1: Yeah, we've got it.
2: Perfect. So I'm just going to walk through um, first just some data trends for the pandemic as a whole in Tennessee, um, and then certainly spend a little time talking about vaccination and other prevention measures. Um, And then, of course, leave plenty of time at the end for questions. Um, Even if I didn't specifically talk about it in my presentation, if it's COVID-related, you're welcome to ask. If I don't know the answer, I will do my best to track it down for you. Um, So to start with, you know, we've been obviously tracking a lot of different metrics uh, since the big pandemic began um, now over a year ago. Um, but, but really we we whittle down um, our, our core metrics into these three main buckets. The first are symptoms, the second being our, our case counts, and then the third being hospitalizations. And these were originally proposed in the reopening guidance from uh, the federal government back in last March or April. But I do think they're really um, helpful and and some of the most reliable metrics to look at the impact that this disease is having on our hospitals and our communities um, and other groups across the state. So we'll start with that symptom data and the main system that we use to track symptoms is something called syndromic surveillance. Um, This actually uses emergency department data. We get uh, pretty real-time data from about 100 hospital emergency departments across the state They send us information on patients seen in the hospital, in the ER, uh, with their symptom information, their basic demographics, um, and their uh, discharge diagnoses. But it's otherwise de-identified. We don't know their name or their date of birth or their address. And the idea is that we can track a whole host of different syndromes and symptoms. This was originally established shortly after 9-11, looking for you know, concerns about bioterror attacks and, and other things like that. And the system has really grown since then nationally to be a non-specific non-specific but, but more real-time indicator of disease trends in the population than some of our more traditional surveillance data. So for COVID, we've really looked at two specific syndromes. The first is influenza-like illness since COVID-19 can look similar to flu in some ways. And then the second is COVID-like illness, which is a specific syndrome um, that, was, that has definitions that include some, some different caveats than flu. So ILI is shown on this graph in that sort of orangey salmon color, um, and then the COVID-like illness is shown in blue. And really just what I'll highlight is that uh, we've seen uh, basically no flu this year. Uh, hopefully none of you had, had the flu or your family had the flu because um, compared to a normal flu season, which, which we can see back in the winter of 2019, 2020, We really had no uptick in influenza cases on emergency departments through most of this uh, fall and winter and now early spring Um, but that this blue COVID-like illness line really does mirror our case trends over time Um, and again these are people seeking care in emergency departments with symptoms and a history that seems consistent with COVID-19. So most recently it's been at very low levels. We have seen a slight blip recently, which I'll show you is fairly commiserate with uh, what we're seeing in hospitalizations, um, but nothing that is overly alarming or concerning. Uh, So the next really uh, important data point is, of course, just our count of cases. Uh, This is people that have confirmed or probable COVID-19 infection. Um, the vast majority of those have a positive diagnostic test for COVID-19, either a molecular test like PCR or uh, an antigen test. <clears throat> so um, we're now approaching 121,000 cases of COVID-19 in Tennessee. This graph looks at the number of cases diagnosed by week. And so really just what I'll highlight is uh, again the big surge in cases that we saw in the late fall and early winter. And then Really most recently we have seen a, a really remarkable plateau and um, really stable case levels for, um, for gosh, almost you know going on seven or eight weeks now. This last bar that's a bit lower is the week that we're in the middle of. So that's part of why that number seems low. I expect that it will probably catch up to be stable uh, compared to the weeks prior once we get to the end of the week, which ends this Saturday. Um, And then it's really important whenever we talk about cases to also talk about that in the context of of testing. Um, Because um, our case definition or criteria for for diagnosing someone with COVID-19 requires in the vast majority of circumstances for them to have been diagnosed with COVID and have had a test for COVID, then the amount of testing that's happening is also relevant to consider. fairly remarkable to realize that since the beginning of the pandemic, we've had over 7.3 million COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 PCR test results reported to us in Tennessee. That's obviously over one test per Tennessean, um, and many people have been tested multiple times. So this, this graph just looks at the seven-day average of testing throughout the course of the pandemic, um, and I think that the things to note are it took us a while to get up to speed with testing. You may recall back in the beginning of the pandemic, testing capacity was very limited um, and there very, weren't very many places where you could get tested for COVID. That's certainly not the case anymore. Um, we saw that testing <clears throat> really ramped up and reached um, kind of its peak during uh, the summertime, fall, and then the wintertime surge in cases where we were routinely averaging you know, 25, 30,000 plus a test being reported on a daily basis. We have seen a decline recently in testing. This is not unique to Tennessee and is is a national trend. This really big dip was associated with a winter storm in early February, which is not surprising since uh, most people were in much of the state were home. Um, But after that, we didn't really see a a rebound to the the level that we had been previously. We're now averaging about 13 or 14,000 tests a day um, and so, you know, while that's down, it's, it's I think, just an important um, context to have in mind as we look at the amount of cases that are being diagnosed. And then the other piece to that, that sort of big equation is the percent of our PCR tests that are positive. When we do less testing, we realize that we might be biasing ourselves toward more sick people uh, only seeking care. Uh, there's obviously a lot of, of screening testing that's happened if any of you have you know, had a surgery or a medical procedure, you know that almost all hospitals uh, require testing um, regardless of symptoms prior to some sort of, of procedure or inpatient stay. Um, but, as, but aside from that, um, we realize that, that fewer people with mild symptoms or with no symptoms who may have had an exposure um, may be seeking testing as frequently as they were before. And so um, you know, we, we watch this percent positivity Um, And if it starts to go up markedly, that's really an indicator to us that that we're missing a big chunk of those people that have mild symptoms or no symptoms yet who are cases. We don't really see that that's the case in Tennessee right now. Our percent positivity is hovering right around 7%, 6.6% over the last week. You can see it's really been kind of a sawtooth up and down over the last um, month or two. Um, As we've had some days that were higher and some that were lower, but in general, um, the vast majority of days since, you know, the end of January have been below that 10% threshold, which is the goal, Um, although we haven't quite gotten to the below 5% threshold, which is really where we would like to be. So, um, so again, just when we look at case counts, it's important to consider that in the context of the testing that's happening, Um, and also the percent of those tests that are positive, which really helps illustrate the whole picture of disease transmission in the state. Um, I do think it's important to also just share the amount of antigen testing that's happening. You know, in Tennessee we've kept PCR and antigen testing reporting very separate. Um, These tests obviously both look for uh, pieces of viral particles. They they both require nose swabs or or a, a throat swab or spit, but for the majority of the time it's a nasal swab PCR testing is it's far more sensitive than antigen testing because it has an amplification step. So it's looking for, the, the test is looking for pieces of the virus's genetic code that are unique to SARS-CoV-2. Um, but it's, it takes um, the, the first, or one of the first steps of that laboratory process is actually duplicating um, any of those genetic sequences that may be there so that it can find that needle in a haystack and find Um, that SARS-CoV-2-specific sequence if it's there. Antigen testing doesn't have that amplification step. It just looks at what's there, whatever you captured on the swab. And most of these antigen tests look for the presence um, of the spike protein on the outside of the the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, that causes um, most of the immune response. Um, And so for that reason, we didn't want to lump those results and percent positivity data together because these are very different tests. Um, But there is a lot of antigen testing happening in Tennessee. It is still an appropriate and good test to use. You just have to recognize that it's not quite as sensitive. So a test could be falsely negative um, as compared to PCR testing, uh, which is possible, but still less likely to be so. So this graph just looks at the um, amount of antigen testing reported to us by week. The dark blue bars are negative tests. The light blue bars are positive tests. And that orange line shows the percent of tests that are positive. So for the last month or two, um, far less than 5% of our antigen tests have been positive. uh, Again, which we would expect that number to be slightly lower since it's a slightly less sensitive test than the PCR test is. Um, Obviously, whenever we talk about cases, uh, a huge component of the pandemic has been in preventing deaths. And so we obviously have tracked uh, deaths attributed to COVID-19 very closely. I expect that we will probably surpass 12,000 deaths in Tennessee today. Um, our case fatality rate, which is the proportion of people diagnosed with COVID-19 <clears throat> who ultimately died, um, is about one and a half percent. So that is is not insignificant. Obviously, that doesn't account for people that had COVID-19 that weren't captured as cases. So the actual proportion of people that die from COVID is probably less than that, since there are undoubtedly people with mild disease or asymptomatic disease that were never tested or captured as cases, Um, but it is still not an insignificant number. Um, Our our death curve mirrors very closely the case curve, which is not surprising. Deaths are considered to be a lagging indicator um, from the time that someone gets sick with COVID until the time that they ultimately die and that death is reported and captured by the Department of Health, um, at a minimum takes four to six weeks. Um, so it's, it's often a very long time from when we see a surge in cases and hospitalizations for us to see uh, the associated um, effect and impact with, with in- increased mortality from that. I do also just want to mention that we have um, an incredible team in the Office of the State Chief Medical Examiner, who review um, literally every single death certificate where COVID-19 is listed as a contributing cause of death. Um, There have been a lot of misconceptions about um, deaths attributed to COVID throughout the pandemic. Um, And I I just want to reassure that, um, you know, if someone is in a car accident and happened to test positive for COVID yesterday um, and they died due to the trauma of the car accident, that's not counted as a COVID death. It's truly people that have, uh, you know, respiratory failure, who have sepsis, who have heart attacks or blood clots or some of the other sequelae that we see from COVID um, that are attributed at least in part to that infection. Um, the question we sort of ask at the root is if they had not had COVID-19 infection, would they have died? Um, and if the answer to that is no, then we, then we don't, then let me make sure I <laughs> say it correctly. If the answer to that is, is that um, they would not have died, Um, then we think that COVID contributed to that death um, and therefore they are counted in this tally. So I just wanna clarify uh, some of the concerns and misconceptions that we've heard about death reporting. Um, So the last bucket of data that we've of course, watched very closely, if you think all the way back to March and April, when we talk about flattening the curve, the goal was really about our healthcare system capacity. And so tracking the number of patients hospitalized with COVID has been of the utmost importance to us in Tennessee, to every state, and to the federal government um, since, since last March, really. In Tennessee, we are a little bit unique in that we have had a long standing system to track healthcare resources. Um, it's called the Healthcare Resource Tracking System, or HERTS. It was established in 2006. And historically, hospitals use it to communicate to one another. Um, so, for example, into first responders and to community partners. So if uh, a large uh, trauma center had their MRI machine go down, they can send out an alert through Hertz, EMS and first responders will stop transporting patients that might need MRI to that hospital. It it lets other hospitals nearby know that um, patients might have to be um, uh, transferred if they need that that particular test or or level of care. Actually just this morning, we got an alert at a hospital Um, in in Tennessee uh, lost water pressure and and lost water for a period of hours. So um, it's a very effective tool and we've relied on it very heavily uh, during COVID to track a number of metrics, uh, including the number of available beds by different categories, the number of ventilators, the amount of personal protective equipment that hospitals had available to them. And then of course the number of admitted COVID patients, both on the floor and the ICU on ventilators, uh, that were newly admitted um, or whom um, they just had a test taken, but were waiting on a result to come back. And so this is that curve of COVID hospitalizations over time. It also looks similar to the case curve and shape. Uh, the black line is the total number of COVID hospitalizations, the red line is the number of ICU patients, the blue line is the number of ventilated patients, and the yellow line is newly admitted patients with COVID. So. Um, We have seen a slight uptick in hospitalizations in the last um, month or so. That's been largely uh, in the middle Tennessee area, although some increase in uh, in Northeast and and Eastern Tennessee as well. Um, Again, not nearly to the level that we were in the the wintertime surge or or even last summer. Here, looking at where we were in July, but it's something that we, of course, track very closely. Um, I think this number, the percent of all hospitalized patients that have COVID is helpful. So right now we're right at about 7%. uh, But to provide you some comparison, in a really, really bad flu season, when um, a lot of patients are admitted with with influenza and and complications from flu, we typically don't get above about 6% of hospitalized patients that have flu. So that gives you just a little bit of context as to how this compares uh, to to the seasonal flu, um, even in a bad year. So I can't talk about COVID without talking about primary prevention measures. I know we are all so tired of talking about social distancing and masking and, and hand hygiene and cough etiquette and, and all of those things. Um, but the reality is that we talk about them a lot because they are effective and they work. Um, I think this model that many of you may have seen online um, is, is really a wonderful example. It, it mirrors <clears throat> the, the sort of Swiss cheese um, defense that we talk about um, in, in medicine and quality improvement, we use similar models, noting that um, you know, almost every measure that we put in place um, for prevention, be it for COVID infection or to prevent a medical error or uh, whatever it may be, um, has some gaps, very few things are silver bullets and are completely or 100% effective. And even if you have multiple measures in place, um, occasionally you can get unlucky and those gaps can line up and allow um, an error to still happen or allow in this case an infection to still happen. But when you put enough of those measures in place together um, just by, by sheer probability um, and the, the cumulative effectiveness of all of those measures taken together, you, you near 100% in effectiveness. And that's really the goal here. So we know if people stay home and they're sick if they wash their hands frequently, if they wear a face covering or mask, especially uh, one that's that's shown to be more effective, if they practice physical distancing, especially in crowded indoor spaces, um, that all of those things taken together are exceedingly effective at at reducing the risk of, of transmission. But especially when you add in people abiding by quarantine and isolation recommendations, now with people getting vaccinated, with people participating in contact tracing. When we we do all of these things collectively together, both our sort of personal individual part and then our community part, um, we really can drive down the rate of transmission to near nothing. But it does take um, effort from everyone in the community uh, for those measures to be the most effective because there's only so much that we can each do as individuals. Um, So I want to shift to then talk a bit about vaccination. Um, uh, Dr. Cross shared the updated vaccine data, and I'll show a similar slide. But, uh, you know, it's been a really exciting time to be in public health and medicine. Um, If you think back to last uh, spring, um, you know, I think the best estimates coming from the federal government were maybe 18 months or so for a vaccine. Um, I've had the good fortune of participating, I guess, in uh, many national pandemic uh, tabletop exercises. And, and typically the timeline that we quote in those exercises is 18 to 24 months for the development of a vaccine. Um, you know, we did it in less than a year. And I think that's really a testament to a whole host of folks, the administration, for their emphasis on the importance of a, a, an effective medical countermeasure like vaccination to, um, to the pharmaceutical companies, you know, there have been some very novel uh, collaborations and partnerships, um, and a lot of, of of good faith, trust in each other uh, to move forward uh, without sort of the, the same level of perhaps legal protections uh, for themselves that maybe that they have had in the past. And so um, it's really an incredible feat, not only for us to have now three vaccines that are currently authorized for use. Um, but three highly effective vaccines. I don't think that anyone, um, well, I'm sure some people did. I don't think most people expected, especially that the mRNA vaccines would be as effective as they are, um, but they really, I think, have, have shown how novel and uh, impactful that, um, that mechanism of action is. And it's really blown the door open for vaccinations for other pathogens and other diseases uh, that you know we really could see change the world um, in many ways, and change the health of, of, of people across this globe for a variety of diseases. So we currently have three vaccines with emergency use authorizations from FDA, Pfizer and Moderna, which are the mRNA vaccines, and then the Janssen J&J vaccine. <clears throat> um, three more vaccines are in the pipeline and may have EUA um, approval from FDA in 2021, but the exact timeline of those is, um, is less certain. The vast majority of these do require two doses. Of course, the the J&J vaccine is the one that uh, just requires a single dose and that's part of why it's become exceedingly popular. (laughs) I don't think anyone likes to get a shot and so to the degree that people can limit uh, the number of pokes required, um, I think they've shown that they're excited to do that. Um, This is just a snapshot from the clinical trials for five of the vaccines in the pipeline. Uh, the top two and then the bottom row on this table are those that are, that are currently um, on the market. And really just what I'll highlight is that of the 40,000-ish um, you know, people that received vaccine in these three trials, um, zero required COVID hospitaliz- or hospitalization for COVID and zero uh, died from COVID. So, you know, of course, we all wanna drive down transmission in our communities. We wanna prevent infection altogether. But at the end of the day the the ultimate goal is really to prevent hospitalizations and deaths and these vaccines are highly effective at doing that. Um, There's been recent updates from CDC about so what can I do after I'm fully vaccinated and that means uh, more than two or more weeks after either the second dose of a two-dose series or the single dose of the J&J vaccine. Uh, we now recognize that, um, that these vaccines likely provide protection not just against symptomatic infection, which was the primary endpoint in most of the phase three clinical trials, um, but also against asymptomatic infection um, or transmission without infection, infectious symptoms. So um, CDC acknowledges that you can visit inside a home or private setting without a mask with other fully vaccinated people. Um, visit in a home or private setting without a mask in a household of unvaccinated people who are not at risk for severe illness, um, travel domestically without a pre or post travel test, travel domestically without quarantining, travel internationally without prior testing before travel, depending on your destination, because many international countries do still require testing, um, and travel internationally without quarantining after travel. So um, I think you know, we've shown that um, you know, there's a lot of benefit to vaccination um, and, it, and it starts to sort of reopen the world, and even just maybe our, our communities and our lives in some ways um, that, that many have not felt safe doing, or really in ways that haven't been recommended uh, for quite some time. Um, so this is the, the most recent version of the vaccine allocation phases in Tennessee. Um, you know, these um, these phases were developed um, in after I mean hundreds of hours of deliberation and consultation with experts, um, largely recognizing that, that not everyone could be vaccinated at once because of the, the limited supply. Um, and so we had to draw lines in the sand somewhere. Um, but um, as, as you all know, there's been an increasing emphasis on just getting vaccines in the arms of, of everyone and anyone. And so <clears throat> as of April 5th, all Tennesseans over age 16 are eligible for vaccine. So, um, you know, that's uh, very much in line with other states. We've seen some of our our neighbors or near neighbors, Mississippi and other states have been wide open for vaccine for a couple of weeks now. Um, So, you know, I think uh, this was a big push from the Biden administration to ensure that that folks of any age could access vaccine. And we've seen that states have implemented that in a a more variable timeframe. But I think last I saw, every state should be wide open um, here within the next week or so. So in Tennessee, we've had um, almost 4.4 million doses of vaccine delivered. About 72% of those doses have been administered. These are data as of yesterday. Um, And as already mentioned, almost 30% of Tennessee and statewide have received at least one dose. So this this graph shows the breakdown of um, the number of people that have started a series So this blue bar is people that have either gotten at least one dose of Pfizer or Moderna, and then the green bar is the uh, people that have received both doses of Pfizer or Moderna or their single dose of J&J. And then this just shows the breakdown by vaccine type. So we've received very little Johnson & Johnson in in Tennessee, um, just over a quarter of a million doses. Uh, Many of you may have seen there have been some manufacturing challenges. And so I expect that this will remain low-ish for some time um, as they work through those kinks and work to get back up to speed um, with with being able to produce the maximum amount of doses as they want. Um, So we've received about 2.2 million doses of Pfizer and about 1.9 million doses of Moderna. Um, This is a snapshot of the demographics of those people that have been vaccinated. Um, And again, so Even if you're getting the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, you're only counted in this a single time as one person. Um, But you can see uh, a a big emphasis on older adults. Obviously, we know that older Tennesseans, older Americans, older humans are at the highest risk of hospitalization and death from COVID. And so there's been a huge push to get that population vaccinated. Um, Also a lot of aggressive outreach to uh, minority communities, um, to rural communities, to um, folks who might not have as easy access to healthcare. Um, you know, some of these are not easy challenges, but there are a lot of groups and stakeholders across the state working uh, to ensure that we get as many people vaccinated as we can. Um, and then the breakdown uh, by sex there on the bottom right. So there are now a lot of different places where you can access vaccine. Um, All of our local health departments continue to offer vaccine on a daily basis. Um, Many hospitals are offering vaccine, um, of course, to the patients that they normally serve, community health centers and federally qualified health centers. Um, The majority of independent and chain pharmacies now carry vaccine. Um, And as we've sort of moved down the priority list, many larger private medical groups and now some smaller medical groups um, also have access to vaccines. So this website, vaccinefinder.org is really the best place to determine what's closest to you. It actually shows if they have vaccine in stock. It shows which vaccines they have if you, for whatever reason, have a particular preference for one vaccine or another, Um, and then directs you how to make an appointment depending on whichever system they may use, be it the health department system or the Walmart system um, or whatnot. Um, And then there's a ton of information on the COVID-19.tn.gov website. I won't bore you with all of it. Some of it is a little bit um, uh, irrelevant now. All of our counties are in the same phase. Uh, Everyone is eligible for vaccines. So those things that were important a month or two ago are now less so, um, but there is still a lot of of relevant information and shareable content, um, especially information around myths um, myth-busting around the vaccine, question and answers about the vaccine, um, links to um, you know credible and reliable information, which I think is, uh, is increasingly important. Um, and then, uh, again, um, lots of opportunities through the Vaccine Finder site and our State Department of Health site to, to determine what vaccine opportunities there are for you and your county. Now that the state is wide open, a little less important to look at this by state, by county, um, but still lots of of options out there. And then lots of opportunities to track progress. We update a dashboard. Many of those metrics I showed you um, on a daily basis. Uh, And then CDC also has a pretty in-depth data tracker, tracking not just cases and hospitalizations, but also vaccinations across the country. So that is what I have to share. I'm happy to answer any questions that folks have um, in the chat or people want to unmute. I will also um, share these slides so that they can be distributed to the group um, if people want to look at them after the fact. I know that was a lot um, of data and information to digest fairly quickly. Um, but in the meantime, happy to answer any questions or clarify anything that I can.
1: Great job, Dr. Phil, as always. Uh, covered a ton of information there, but uh, you always present it in a in an easy to understand way. We appreciate that. I got a quick question, then I'll just turn it to Lisa to moderate any other questions uh, from the group. I'm asked every day, and I'm sure you are too. Well, when are we going to be able to to worry less about social distancing and about masks and about having larger public meetings? Uh, any feel for? Uh, timeline or a time frame. You talked about a few restrictions that have been changed, but what do you see down the road the next month or two or three? Yeah,
2: that's a great question. And I think to be perfectly honest right now, we're in a little bit of a race against the clock. Um, You know, we have seen that I I didn't talk about it, but I I do think it's important to mention the emergence of now half a dozen or so what we're calling variants of concern for the SARS-CoV-2 virus um, it is normal for viruses to mutate, especially as they are spreading rapidly through populations. It's not surprising to anyone that, we've, we've, that there are variants um, and that they acquire some different traits. Um, so, you know, I think um, we've now, and there was some discussion by CDC this week, that the, the B117 variant, which was the variant that was first identified in the United Kingdom, which has been shown to be about 50% more transmissible, um, and have perhaps a slightly higher mortality rate, is now, you know, nearing or is the dominant strain that's circulating in the United States in most places. Um, fortunately, the vaccine in most instances is still highly effective against B117. There are some mutations, additional mutations that that variant can acquire that make the vaccine less effective, but um, but the, the key to reducing both the spread of existing variants and the emergence of new variants who could have um, even, even more profound implications on vaccine effectiveness or the effectiveness of some therapeutics like monoclonal antibodies and others is to decrease transmission. And so um, you know, a virus can't mutate if it's not spreading between people. And so that's where those prevention measures, as, as tired as we all are of them, <laughs> Um, you know, we really have to keep them up a bit longer, um, and at least until we can get enough of the population vaccinated um, to, to start to really see that, that that's impacting the transmission in our communities. Um, so to the degree that you can, if you know, I encourage all of you to get vaccinated if you're not already, encourage your friends and family and neighbors um, and community members, because, um, you know, there, there is a substantial proportion of Tennesseans who've said, you know what, I'm not really interested. And unfortunately, um, you know, the larger that group is, the more it impacts all of us and our ability to sort of get back to normal, um, you know, if we continue to see fairly high levels of disease transmission, as we do continue to see. While we're at a plateau, we're still not at very low levels of disease. And so it's important to, to clamp that down even more if we can.
1: Thank you.
0: Great, well, we do have a couple of questions, Dr. Phil. Um, The first one is, have COVID tests been adapted um, to to find these new variants or is that even something that's necessary?
2: Yeah, so fortunately, most of the testing that's that's out there right now will still um, test positive even if someone's infected with a variant. So as I mentioned before, you know, the PCR tests that are looking for bits of the, the virus's genetic code, most of them actually look for several different bits of the genetic code. Most look for three. And so um, what we see, for example, with the B117 variant is that some PCR tests um, then only test positive on two of the three targets instead of three of three. That's still enough to call it a positive. Um, but it's now actually become a flag that it could be a variant that has acquired a mutation in that one target that's causing it to test negative. Um, but the antigen test, all of these viruses, even the variants, still have that same spike protein, so the antigen test shouldn't be uh, less, less, uh, less uh, sensitive. Um, you know, that's certainly something, though, that we're monitoring for. There's lots of work to ensure that as new variants are identified or emerge that they don't dramatically impact diagnostics and wouldn't require laboratories to potentially change the targets that they're using. Um, But to date, that hasn't been the case. Um, But the way that we ultimately identify a variant is by doing full whole genome sequencing of the virus. And so that's an area where, um, to be honest, we still have uh, fairly um, intermittent capacity, irregular capacity maybe is a better word, across the state. Tennessee participates in a, a national surveillance program with CDC. We send a couple of dozen specimens to CDC, just randomly selective positives um, every other week. And they, they just sort of put it in a bank and do whole genome sequencing looking for both known and new variants. Um, but then other than that, we have a couple of academic and commercial laboratories across the state that are doing sequencing some at random, some uh, some with more frequency than others because they have a particular interest in it. But that's led to um, really a convenient sample. So you know, we we don't have a great sense in Tennessee, you know, what proportion of our cases as a whole are a variant. We can tell you, I, I can't tell you right now, but in theory, we can tell you what proportion of cases that were sequenced tested positive for a variant, but not of all of our cases as a whole. And and that's where we're working to stand up that whole genome sequencing capacity at our state public health laboratory um, in order to to more systematically, um, you know, do sort of a, a sequencing strategy across the state and better understand geographically everywhere what proportion of cases are likely variants.
0: So another question, and forgive me if I uh, don't say this correctly, but um, the person is asking if you are tracking MIS-C cases related to COVID, Mm -hmm. and uh, can you share any information related to testing for this?
2: Yeah, so MIS-C, it stands for Multisystem Inflammatory multisystem inflammatory syndrome of children. There's also an MISA, the same version uh, or a similar disorder in adults. And it's thought to be, um, although it's not completely well understood, um, kind of a a dysregulated immune response to the virus after COVID infection. Um, Some of you may have heard of a very uncommon childhood illness called Kawasaki disease. Um, It's actually a similar presentation. It's a constellation of clinical symptoms Laboratory findings that often demonstrate um, inflammation across the body, in, in the liver, and the skin, and the joints, occasionally in the heart, and kidneys, and other organs. Um, and so, this was first recognized in children. I think largely because it looks similar to Kawasaki's, and pediatricians are, are, are used to diagnosing that. Again, it's not a common disease, but um, you know, most uh, p- pediatricians in a children's hospital are familiar with Kawasaki's. Um, and then and then subsequently we realized this can also happen although rarely in adults so we do track misc cases i don't know the count right off the top of my head but i'm happy to send a link um, in the in my notes uh, to dr cross after the call um, and uh, and work closely with all of our academic children's centers uh in the state to make sure that they're tracking that uh you know there isn't any um uh well-established therapy. Most cases resolve on their own without treatment, um, but it, it can be um, very serious. It can be life-threatening. I think there have been deaths associated with it, although not in Tennessee. Um, so it, so it is uh, an uncommon sequelae of COVID infection.
0: So another person um, is asking, uh, how can we predict that the vaccine will not cause some long-term um, unknown effects to our health other than getting COVID? So this would be, I guess, in adults.
2: Sure. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, we we would always love for there to be decades of study of something before it's implemented in the population. But the reality is that the mRNA technology that's used in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine and the um uh, viral replication vector technology used in the J&J vaccine are not new technologies and they have been studied for a long time. Now they haven't been used, the, the mRNA technology has not been used at the scale, um, but it has been used in people um, for, for a variety of trials and studies for for many, many years. Um, and, and taking a step back to the sort of basic science and biochemistry and, and pathophysiology, there's, there's no reason to think um that that this um would would cause any long-term sequelae um you know i I think it's always a little unnerving to think about you know we talk about genetic terms and dna and rna but the reality is that all these vaccines do is is give our immune system um a recipe basically for a a small piece of this virus that they can create uh the 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 outcome of the recipe, the tiny piece of the spike protein of the virus that they can then learn to recognize, should the body be introduced to that virus again. And so, it's not anything that changes our genetic code in any way. It's not doesn't cause any sort of uh, of response or reaction by our immune system that is different than it would to any other pathogen or or foreign substance or body that it um, would be coming across in our day-to-day lives. Um, and so I, again, I think if anything, this, this, um, the success of these vaccines has shown that this technology is very safe and I think will probably be implemented for a variety of diseases um, in the future. Um, but, I, you know, I do understand people's concerns and, um, you know, we're always happy to answer whatever questions we have. We don't have a crystal ball, but, um, you know, there are are very smart scientists um, and and vaccine experts that, that created these vaccines, um, immunology experts. And you know, it's they're not flippant um, or quick decisions that are being made. Um, you know, thousands, millions of hours of effort and work have gone into the development of these vaccines, um, and they truly are very safe.
0: So, this question actually gets a little more specific about the vaccine and asking that um, is it true that none of the vaccines have been tested or trialed to see how they affect fertility?
2: Um, I wouldn't say that that's true. So, you know, pregnant women typically aren't included in trials. And I would say, in the vast majority of, of clinical trials for any medicine or vaccine, um, we don't necessarily do fertility studies as part of that. Um, so, you know, to, to this point, though now thousands of, of pregnant or um, women of childbearing age have been vaccinated, if not millions. Um, I can say that I um, I am expecting my second child, and I received my vaccine in my first trimester of pregnancy without any hesitation. Um, and you know, there has been no signal or flag of concerns um, either for women who are pregnant or breastfeeding or just women of childbearing age uh, to receive these vaccines. Um, We have a very comprehensive system called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS, um, that anyone, you, your neighbor, your friend um, can report any potential side effect um, that you might've had after vaccination or concern. And there are dozens, hundreds of people that mine that system for signals or flags of, of some sort of problem. Um, And and to date, um, you know, there has not been any flag or signal of anything concerning um, related to anything, um, let alone uh, for women or women of childbearing age.
0: Great. Um, This person said, asked, says that you you showed results of the vaccine trials that no one had been hospitalized or died uh, from COVID after receiving the vaccine. Um, yet the vaccines are considered to only be 75 to 95 percent effective. So are the symptoms just lower on those that are getting vaccinated um, and happen to get COVID?
2: Yeah, so the primary endpoint for most of these phase three trials was symptomatic infection. So that means that people enrolled in the trials weren't you know, routinely tested for COVID every, every day or every week or every month. They just notified the clinical trial team if they developed any symptoms that could be consistent with COVID infection. And so we know that Pfizer and Moderna were 95% um, effective at, at, at preventing symptomatic infection um, and that the, the Janssen vaccine is about 75% or so. You know, Now that these vaccines have been given in the real world, and we have hundreds of millions of people across the country and globe that have been vaccinated, There's a lot more data on that. And and we see that that they're not only effective at preventing symptomatic infection, um, which is, again, just any symptoms, a small cough or a low-grade fever, um, you know, definitely not to the point of requiring hospitalization, um, but also seem to be effective at preventing the, you know, 30 to 40% of COVID cases that are asymptomatic and don't have any symptoms at all, um, which was a real um, sort of, I won't say a real concern, but was certainly a question that still existed after the clinical trials because that was not the, the point that the endpoint that they were studying. So, um, so, uh, so yes. Yeah, so that means that they're very effective at preventing severe disease, which means that um, you know the immune system might not be in 100% of instances might not be able to prevent someone from being infected or having mild symptoms, but the immune system can respond enough to keep people from getting. Um, overwhelming infection that causes them to be hospitalized or, or even worse have a have a fatal outcome.
0: So this person is wondering um, about a family member who um, uh, cannot get the vaccine due to um, a severe allergic reaction to preservatives or fillers. And so what extra measures can these people take? Can they get a vaccine or should they just take other precautions?
2: I'm sorry, my my headphones died. Could you repeat the first part of that? I heard the very end. The
0: the first part was, what if a family member or someone um, is not eligible to get the vaccine because they have severe allergic reactions to preservatives or fillers?
2: Yeah, I mean, I always recommend people talk with their personal doctor, they know your health history best. Um, but you know, the the reality is that with any vaccine, we know that there are going to be people in the population who either can't receive it for whatever reason, um, or who may be in that five to 25%, depending on the vaccine that don't have a robust immune response and are still um, at risk of infection. And so that's where you know, the rest of us being vaccinated can help protect those people. You know, we talk about this a lot um, in the pediatric world with, um, you know, children with cancer, with with children getting chemotherapy, can't receive a lot of their childhood immunizations because some of those are live virus vaccines that actually can make you sick if your immune system is weak. Um, but if their their family and their community and their school are vaccinated, Then there's basically no chance of them being exposed to those viruses in the community. So that's where we can all do our part and protect each other. Um, Us getting vaccinated not only protects us selfishly, but also protects those people in our community who may not be able to be vaccinated for whatever reason.
0: And do you think that uh, this these vaccines will become um, a yearly occurrence that we need to get them just like we do the flu shot?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think the jury is still out on that. Um, you know, there's there's many teams of people studying that very question. We're getting sort of interval updates now as we get further and further out from the clinical trials. The trial participants will be followed for two years after their um, initial participation, at least. And so, um, you know, we'll have good data from those very controlled and um, and tracked well tracked groups, but um, but also just from the general population. So you know, right now um, we see that uh, that there is seems to be good stable immune protection. You know, at least six to eight months out from vaccine, um, and they're going to keep updating that as we get further and further out. I wouldn't be surprised, just knowing. Um, the sort of historical um, immune response to coronaviruses and what we see for other coronaviruses besides SARS-CoV-2, um, if some degree of repeat vaccination is necessary. Excuse me, is necessary now. If that's going to be every year or every two years, I think that remains to be seen. Um, but I, I wouldn't. I don't think people should be surprised if you know, two years from now we have a combo flu COVID vaccine that we all try to get every winter time um, versus uh, you know, just getting the seasonal flu shot.
0: Great, and one last question. This is coming from an extension agent dealing with a number of clientele out uh, in, in our communities. How do we fight the misinformation and vaccine hesitancy and fear among these folks?
2: Yeah. You know, I think trying to listen and understand what their concerns are, are really important. Um, you know, we are a lot of different groups are looking at this and trying to understand it's not a one size fits all approach. Um, and I actually think, you know, trusted, um, you know scientists and representatives of universities and, and, and medicine and science are are actually you know really valuable allies at sort of the grassroots level in um in in putting out uh you know clear and correct information about vaccines about these vaccines so you know I think um it's it's often uh it takes time to build that trust I would invite you if you know people that have concerns or hesitancy to just have a a you know a non-judgmental and open conversation with them about what their concerns are, and then talk about it again in the future. You know, no one's no one we're not, we're not. Um, everyone comes to this from their own place with their own own background, their own um, experiences and concerns everyone has their own, uh, tolerance of, of risk, both of COVID infection and of, uh, you know, a a newer, although, you know, well-tested and, and safe therapeutic. And so I think trying to get at what's driving that concern, um, and then, you know, provide information to, um, to, to correct any, you know, gently correct any misconceptions or, or, or incorrect statements. Um, and then, you know, Be a a gentle but persistent nudge (laughs) to continue to encourage. Um, You know, we've seen, uh, there was actually a lovely article um, not that long ago about Um, vaccination efforts in a long-term care facility in in New England. Um, You know, we saw that um, uptake among residents of long-term care facilities was very high, you know, 70, 80 plus percent. But among staff, it was much lower, less than 40 percent in many institutions. And, you know, the staff are the conduits of the virus in most instances, bringing it into the facility. And so, um, you know, there was a, a, a nursing home, you know, corporate nursing home and, and, um, a part of the country that, um, you know, spent hundreds of hours, you know, through different, you know, fireside chats and lunch and learns and individual conversations with their staff Um, you know, not always with the big boss, but with, you know, nursing managers and team leads and things understanding what was driving people's reluctance. And ultimately, they were able to get up in their facility to, you know, over 75% of staff that were vaccinated, but, um, but it is a a sort of case by case person by person approach. Um, And, and I, uh, I, I would, again, you know, say that, All of you are important advocates in that if you feel comfortable doing so and, um, you know, I think are really trusted voices in your communities and, um, and ultimately, you know, I think, in some instances, people don't want to hear from me, they want to hear from their personal physician, they want to hear from their pastor, they want to hear from, you know, their, their trusted family member. And so those folks are just as important as those of us working in public health and medicine in, uh, in this conversation and this, this movement as, as, you know, those of us that stereotypically have those conversations are.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much. And Tim, would you like to wrap things up?
1: Yeah, I would. Uh, And of course, I'm going to begin by thanking Dr. Phil once again. You know, I I personally, uh, when I encounter folks say they don't uh, believe they want to get a vaccine and they're worried about it from a safety perspective, I'm just going to tell them Dr. Phil says it's fine, go get it. So uh, that's going to be my strategy going forward. I really appreciate uh, your time with us today here, uh, Dr. Barry Margaret Phil. Uh, We appreciate all the help and support we get through the Department of Health, uh, you and Commissioner Piercy and the whole team over there. Uh, It's important to us and the work we do, but it's also important to us as residents of Tennessee, knowing we've got a a really good uh, health department that's uh, that's leading uh, especially at this time. So, thanks so much. Uh I'll let you say any final words you might wish. Uh we've worn your headphone batteries out, so I oh, know
2: you're fine. <laughs> I think I need a new set. They can't make it through an hour long call normally anyways. So, you're you're perfectly fine. No, again, just thanks so much for um for, for having me and I'll, I'll share my slides and some additional notes that I mentioned uh, with you, Dr. Cross, to be shared with the group. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me or others on our team if we can help in any way. Um, and uh, and thank you for all that you guys do. I hope that you all stay safe and healthy and can enjoy some pretty weather this weekend.
1: Great, thanks again. And we'll uh, we'll be sure to post your slides and, and we've got a, a COVID site ourselves where we'll make uh, all that information available, so. Very good. Uh, Just a few other quick points and I'll wrap up here. Uh, You know, as as Dr. Phil mentioned, things are looking better, but uh, we we can't abandon all the same practices we've talked about every week for the past uh, 13, 14 months. We do still have to wear our masks uh, when we can't social distance. We do need to stay home when we're not feeling well. Uh, We've got to do our part to protect one another. And that includes getting vaccinated. So I've, I've got mine. I happen to be one of those who uh, signed up and received the uh, Janssen vaccination. So uh, not only did I uh, only have to make one, get one shot, I only had to make one appointment. So that really worked out well. Take advantage of uh, vaccine cl- clinic opportunities in your communities uh, as, as you're ready to and as they're available. Uh, and you've seen uh, this week that campuses across the UT system are starting to target June 1 for what we're describing as returning to the workplace, and I want to let you know uh, we're, we're giving a lot of thought about that uh, right now among our leadership team, determining exactly what that means, uh, particularly for our off-campus faculty. And so we're going to be sharing some more uh, information about that in the next few weeks. So we're going to be working closely with all of our supervisors, our deans, directors, and department heads, and we will get back to you and say, all right, here's here's what we're going to be doing. Uh, And certainly we want to be scaling up. We want to have our offices accessible. Uh, but we want to do so safely, and we don't want to be uh, contributing to the spikes uh, that that, uh, some have predicted would come about. So stay tuned. Uh, We'll be providing more information, and uh, we're going to do our very best to continue to keep uh, everyone uh, healthy and safe. So I'll stop right there. Thank you again for all that all of you do, and I hope uh, each of you enjoy your weekend. Back to you, Lisa.
0: Yes, and one more thing, Uh, thank you everyone for joining us and be sure to mark your calendars for a special edition of our Fireside Chat on Friday, April 23rd at 11 a.m. President Randy Boyd will be joining us to share the new UT System values with us in person. And so we'll look forward to seeing you then and and hearing from him. One last
1: thing, I I wasn't really done. (laughs) (laughs) Joe Cagle has 200 bricks that are cleaned up from the former Ellington Plant Science building. If you uh, took classes in Ellington Plant Science or that building has special meaning to you and you'd like to have a brick from that building, get a hold of Joe, drop by the warehouse, uh, and get your own personal brick. So I want to make sure and say that. And finally, uh, Dr. Phil, if you're still listening, uh, I noted that you have one child and another on the way. Uh, we're going to count on both of them being uh, UT uh, Knoxville students uh, in uh, 14, 16 years, 18 years.
2: I will see what I can do. Uh, I'm an Ohio State alum and my husband is a Michigan alum, so uh, mm-hmm. we'll have a hard time swaying them from the Big Ten, but um, but I will, <laughs> we'll do our best. <laughs> see, if
1: they come here, you won't have any family squabbles about yeah,
2: exactly. And, uh,
1: exactly. <laughs> All right, thanks everyone. Bye now.